Welcome to Swift Unscripted, a podcast that gives you the opportunity to hear inside stories and be a part of the conversation with education leaders who are transforming schools to benefit each and every student, their families, and ultimately the communities in which they live. Hi, I'm Holly Patterson with the Swift Education Center, and I'm here with my colleague Amy, and we're excited to talk about reopening schools and what kind of plans can be done in advance for that. Yeah, thanks, Holly, for that introduction, and um, excited to talk about this. We know that, you know, folks are having this big question really all across the world about what this could uh, look like, this reopening, and I think just as we go into this, it's this concept of what if, right? And so if we think about this what if schools could look a certain way, and we think about how to pull on the strengths of what we have going on with our students, our population, our staff, we can build a what if. Yeah, well, and, and the thing I want to not get lost is it is so rare for educators to have an opportunity to think and plan without having students right in front of them. And so now's an opportunity, though we all miss the students and we, we look forward to the opportunity to be with them again. We've got some time. We've got some luxury of time here. And I think that idea of time gives us a chance to take a step back and recognize schools do need to be reimagined. I mean, we see that in lots of literature, we see it in our outcomes, and yet we haven't had the time to really even be forced to say, what could it be? And now we are at this crux of being kind of forced to, hey, recognize, you know, schools don't work for everybody how they are right now. We've got data showing lots of disproportionality for our black and brown children. We've got economic issues in there. We have lots of exclusionary thinking that is occurring in a deficit perspective, basically, on how we think about, you know, our students and what they could or could not do. What are your thoughts about maybe what time this could bring for us? Well, I think it gives us an opportunity to really grapple with hard topics, really practice our, our muscle, if you will, to dialogue about what's important to us. You, you said schools have perpetuated deficit thinking. I couldn't agree more. I think we're seeing in current events and the school to prison pipeline, there's a lot of issues in our current system that need to be addressed and they need to be addressed now. We can't wait. Our students don't get to redo third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade or sixth grade. We need to get a plan in place that's gonna get them where they need to be. So as you lead us into that, let's talk about one, some stuff that we do at SWIFT when we really talk about building an equity-based, multi-tiered system of support. But when we think about equity-based, multi-tiered system of support, you know, it comes up that there are really kind of three components that we really need to consider, right? Mm -hmm. It would be the who's coming to our schools, who's actually in our schools, the students and the staff, taking into account what we could build then this idea of how to get to this equity-based MTSS. But again, thinking about the language of MTSS being multi-tiered system of support, how would you describe it in that way? One of the things that comes to mind whenever someone says MTSS is, that's a lot of letters. It feels like we're, again, creating educator ease and we're creating a new vocabulary that in some ways stops the conversation for some people. So... One of the things I really like about the approach that we're taking at SWIFT is we're really talking about what it means to 
serve students in a way that is equitable and just, that gets students to realize their own potential. And I think MTSS is, is our way to do that. It means we are identifying that not everybody needs the same thing. And we're also identifying that support needs to be flexible and it needs to come, it needs to come in smart ways. So when we think about our system, right now we have an opportunity to talk about how we're gonna, how we're gonna organize it and how we're gonna bring all of the moving pieces of schools together. And I think the real goal we've got is how do we create a place where everybody can thrive? The students, the staff, the families really thrive. You know, and just the phrase of multi-tiered system of support, that idea of support, that last word kind of gets lost sometimes. The idea is that we're here to support our staff, to support our students, to be able to thrive. Where if we think about how our education system right now is set up is that support looks like actually unintentional barriers mm -hmm. that get set up for students to hurdle over. And this concept that, you know, Sometimes I just like to ask folks, you know, does your school make sense? Does your building make sense from a student's perspective? Or are they hurdling over these barriers instead of getting the supports to lift them up? And I think that's really where the equity comes in. Uh, let's talk about that word support, because I think it gets thrown around like, you know, confetti. Oh, we're going to support this. Oh, I support that. Oh, this is what I support. And this is what my friends support. And what we're talking about with MTSS is actually putting our money where our mouth is. Like, really, are we meeting students where they are? And are we putting the curriculum, instruction, assessment, social-emotional learning, are we putting all of those pieces together in a way that makes sense? That brings up the word integrated for me, this integrated approach. You know, before, you know, I hear so many times and having been a previous teacher and school administrator, I definitely wasn't follow this of, we're going to meet on this student about behavior. We're going to meet on this student on this. And really what we're talking about now with this equity-based integrated multi-tiered system of support is how do we take all of these factors leverage the strengths of our staff to have a cohesive support for students to be able to do whatever it is they want to do and that we can be an ally in that work instead of a barrier. Well and I love I love how you said that Amy because it really brings us back to how COVID can be an opportunity for us. Talking about disparities in our system is not easy and it takes a lot of energy. And so if we're going to build an equity-based system, we really need to think through what are the strengths of our system and how can we address the gaps, the places where we are not serving students well, despite our best intentions. That brings the second question. If these questions are hard and we're saying that people haven't been really digging deep into them, how do we create the collective stamina to keep going even when we hit a barrier or even when it feels like we're not making progress. That's the part that really, we talk about support, we throw support around all the time, but how do we have stamina to actually do something? You know, not just admire the challenges the students are bringing to the table, but do something. And I think that do something comes in the questions that we ask. 
So there's a, a really solid question that we really, you know, want educators to really think through, which is anytime we're putting in place a policy, a practice, a protocol, a change of anything, or analyzing what we're doing now, the question of who is marginalized and who benefits from this? And then we have a partner site that says, and how are we going to mitigate this? Putting that at the center, recognizing that every system is going to be set up for people to be marginalized and people to benefit. And naming that at the center can really help us go ahead and leverage different practices and policies by actually owning it at the start versus watching the outcomes later on. Right. And I think going back to that idea of collective stamina, how do we come together and admit our system's going to have some, some flaws? It's not a perpetual motion machine. We are going to have to tinker with it every step along the way if we are going to make sure that all of our students have what they need to thrive. Let's talk a little bit about our students and how they do thrive, right? So, you know, we think about in a school building at this point in time, we could have up to four generations of educators and families in our building. You know, we can have from the, the boomers to, to Gen Z as first year teachers, and each of those particular generations bring a lot of strength to them and also a lot of grounded ways of looking at the world based on what that generation has experienced within their time in this world. And that interesting dichotomy of generations and what's valued and not valued, but there's so much strength specifically in our Generation Z, which is, you know, around 1997, you know, not a hard line of when being born, Till, you know, about 2012, right about in there. Yeah, yeah. so you're talking about the majority of our students, right? Uh, yeah, I'm talking about the people who are walking through our halls, experience our education, our students, yes. I think it's interesting. I have two children. I have a nine-year-old and 11-year-old, and they are both Generation Z. And I mean, human beings are human beings. We all have our strengths and we all have our challenges. But man, my kids expect a different world than what I accepted. Say more about that. Well, I feel like my generation, I'm Generation X, and we're kind of known as not really taking our, our opportunity to make a difference as seriously as we could. Certainly, that's, that's a broad stroke, and there are, there are examples of individuals and groups who have really made a difference. But I feel like as a Generation Xer, I kind of, in many ways, accepted what I saw in front of me. I may not have liked it, but I kind of just figured, oh, well, that's just how it is. My kids are not like that. My kids see something that is an injustice in their mind and they want to fix it. And I think that's a great thing that our students are bringing to the table right now. And I think what you're getting at too, and what I appreciate you sharing is the fact that, you know, this generation one, they expect diversity everywhere in every type of medium which you know as we talk about curriculum we'll talk about how to bring diversity into the center of the curriculum not an add-on right and that's an expectation they have we also i think what you're getting at too is that they want to know why show me the data you know if you're going to say that stand on something and show it because if not i'll just look it up myself anyway right. um, they're not they're not willing to just trust the expert 
And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with them pushing everybody to substantiate the claims they make. So we have this generation that has lots of strengths and also we have to recognize the toll it takes. So within this generation as well, really what they've experienced, they've had gun violence in schools, they've had, they're standing up against different, you know, with participating in protests. They've also spent the most time preparing for standardized tests and assessments instead of like grappling with content and having, you know, everything has been state assessment driven. And as a result, you know, some of the data that we're getting around mental health says that it's taking a toll on them, which gets to our integrated approach. But now if we layer COVID on top and talk about this idea of trauma that we're all experiencing, talk us through a little bit, Holly, about um, some of the impacts that trauma can have that kind of can pop up for us. I've heard people talk about trauma in different ways. And one of the things that I've been trying really hard to confront or at least push back on is this idea that different types of trauma are more problematic than others. So it's almost like a a one-upmanship. And what's important to know about trauma is trauma is judged by how much it affects the individual. So something that affects me very strongly may not affect you really strongly and vice versa. And so we have to have respect for the fact that trauma lands on people in different ways. And if we really want to be an empathetic society, we've got to be able to support people from where they are, which comes to those impacts of trauma. Trauma affects everything. It affects how we think. It affects our emotions, our relationships. It affects what we're able to do physically. And it affects the way we see the world. So we can't discount trauma. And with COVID, we're in a a little bit of a double whammy because we've got this generation that's that's experienced trauma, but also is more aware of trauma and it's affecting their mental health and well-being. And now we have a global pandemic that is affecting everyone. There are so many unknowns that all of us are confronting. So there's this concept uh, called collective trauma. And it's really, you know, what is the shared experience of helplessness that we are having as a group? How are we feeling disoriented? And you know, how are we identifying with this situation? And right now with COVID and with the other big things that are going on in our country, there is a collective trauma that is re-injuring a group of students that we care deeply about. So we have students and staff who are going through this collective trauma. And we also recognize going back to what we started this conversation with, that our most marginalized populations are being impacted at even a more significant rate because of with COVID. In my home state of Utah, students of color are one in six. So Utah has a lot of communities that are not as diverse as some more metropolitan areas. So if you think about it that way, one in six is a person of color. But in the state of Utah, our COVID cases are 50-50. So people of color are being disproportionately impacted in the communities here in Utah. I looked at a map where they showed the hot areas and it was not a surprise to me that the places where there were high infection rates were also the places that have been impacted by, you know, systematic racism and other systemic barriers to different groups of people. For example, poverty or intergenerational families or, you know, dense living environments. 
all of that is hitting people really hard. That is a group of students that, as we said earlier, have often been marginalized and subjected to deficit thinking. And we can't continue to do that. And we have to own the fact that schools have played a part in that creating that marginalization instead of the supports that we're trying to get at. And having that as, you know, a full background as to this opportunity to restart, I do think that as we think about equitable practices, policies, and protocols, and the idea of equity-mindedness about like what opportunities do students, you know, this is very good from a student's perspective, you know, what voice and access do we allow, not just like have, actually allow and how about, you know, if we have representation or engagement, you know, what does that actually look like? And we have this, you know, opportunity as a call to action as to what we could do with this, you know, I know that Dean Fixon uses this term of wicked problem. And right. this, idea, yeah. And so with wicked problem, we have a wicked problem that we are attempting to solve in a system that is not set up to solve the wicked problem. And, and so when we bring that together, and right now empower our educators, empower our policymakers, empower you know, all of our lawmakers to say, what can this restart do? And go ahead and put our students on an amplified trajectory towards equitable outcomes. It is a call to action. Right. Well, and I, I'm so glad you brought up the concept of wicked and tame problems, because making schools equitable is a wicked problem. It has so many moving parts and so many different interests that when we go back to what we said at the beginning of this conversation, we've got to build collective stamina. The only way that wicked problems are going to be addressed is if we have everybody coming to the table and owning what they can do and how they can help. It really reminds me of a quote that I recently read that says, if we fail to plan with the most vulnerable students, not just in mind, but at the table, we will be stuck with old ways of learning that are both impractical and unsuited for moving us forward. So when I, when I hear that, I think, yeah, we shouldn't continue to retrofit the system to meet the needs of the students. Let's address this as a wicked problem that has a lot of moving parts that we can pull apart and put together in a way that better still suits the needs of our students. And this idea of, you know, everybody at the table, we think about our educators at SWIFT. I know we talk about doing some resource work, you know, and asking staff, you know, what are the strengths that you have? What are your interests and how to leverage it differently then by putting a person's name in a, on a room and said, this is your room, this is what you do, because that's not how we approach the world, which really thinks about this reimagining and this call to action. And we think about everybody at the table. And if we start with resource allocation, what are some things that we need to keep in mind with resource allocation? Well, I think if we look at it from a strengths-based approach, we will never have everything we need. We will never have all of the money in the world and all of the resources. So what we have to start with is what do we have? And one of the things we have is time. We know how much time we're going to have with students. Now with COVID, that time may be looking a little bit differently. And 
I'm not sure that's a bad idea because the way we've been using that resource of time hasn't supported the needs of all of our students. When I think about time, I think about it's our you know, greatest free resource that we have. At times we underutilize and then also have a fragmented way of dispersing that or allocating that for our most marginalized populations. In our work with K-12 schools, we've done a lot of work with mapping out the use of time. And we have some great tools on our website to support schools in having that conversation because the conversation is hard enough. We need some guardrails to help the conversation go in the direction that's gonna result in equity for kids. As we do that, and what we're building within our time is we're building the environment our students are going to experience in the staff. When we talk about trauma-informed practices and building an environment, is asking the question of what happened to you? Not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you? And as we are coming with this global pandemic and protests and lots of Generation Z and many other generations standing up and, and voicing change for inequitable decision-making that's occurring and has been occurring since the beginning of time, asking what happened to you. Well, and I think along those same lines with what happened to you, it's an opportunity for us to remember that trauma is defined by the impact it has, not what it is. And when we come back from this pandemic, we will have students who ha all have very different experiences with the trauma that was COVID. With, you know, were their parents frontline workers? And they saw that every day. Did they have a family member who was ill, hospitalized, or died? You know, what kind of things happened in our different communities that we need to ask that question as they come back in order to build an environment that will support them? You know, one of my idols and you and I have share one in common, many in common, but one, especially now to bring to the surface, Barbara Jordan. And Barbara Jordan as one, a person whose story is not told in our history classes. But should be. It, she should be. It's just an, another example of the way our curriculum instruction has not leveraged the strengths of our people of color in our history. You know, in our total, you know, I love that idea of like our history. It's our story. You right. know, and one quote, just one of many that live with me is the imperative is to define what is right and do it. And I think that's our call to action, to actually do it. And Education is action research. Every day, every interaction. So having the courage and this call to make a change and not in both big and small ways, every interaction is going to create different outcomes. Every interaction adds up. Every interaction, every choice we make. And we have the opportunity to take this step back and say, what if? What if? Right. We can, I mean, you and I are both Generation X. We can adopt the questions that our Generation Z students currently have. And those questions are, what's the rationale for that? How, how does that impact me as a person? You know, what's the evidence for that? Those are the questions that they're asking. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. Holly, it's been so good chatting with you. Amy, it's been a delight talking to you. You too, Holly. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Swift Unscripted, a podcast produced by Swift Education Center. We invite you to comment on what you heard and to visit our website, swiftschools.org, where you can find more stories of school-wide transformation and resources to start your own school transformation. Swift Education Center is a research and technical assistance center located at the University of Kansas.